The title of this retreat is uh, Insight and Compassion, The Wings to Awakening. And um, I've been talking mostly about compassion, um, some about insight, but I'd like to focus on that more tonight. What is insight? The word insight is a translation of the, um, the Pali word, vipassana. Uh, vipassana, the meaning of it is seeing into. Seeing, some people um, have translated it as seeing deeply. When we talk about insight in our co common everyday language um, in this culture, we're usually talking about something um, having to do with psychological insights. That's the way the word is commonly used. Um, insight into, you know, why do I have that habit or why do I have that fear? Um, and it has to do with um, understanding our story, the story of of our upbringing, the story of our experiences, and um, and and the conditioning that we experienced, and so uh, we gain insight, and that can be very helpful because uh, it can it can give us some understanding of where these mental habits came from, and um, and that you know they're not necessarily intrinsic to us. Um, so, uh, but the, in the way insight is used in the translation of vipassana is pointing to something different. It's pointing to spiritual insight. <clears throat> insight into the nature of our experience. <clears throat> and the Buddha taught that there are three characteristics of everything that we can experience through our senses, through our eyes, our ears, our nose, our tongue, and our tactile sense, our body. And also in, in Buddhist teaching, um, the conceptual mind, the thinking mind, is referred to as a sense. It's, it's uh, the sixth sense. So, um, so Buddha, the Buddha said, you know, the, the Buddha's teaching is always in this manner of um, have a look at your experience and see if you find this to be true. And that's the spirit in which I'm, I'm, I'm offering this teaching is, um, you know, it's, it's have a look at your experience, you know, and see if you find this to be true, to be, to be uh, accurate. That, that these three characteristics are present in everything that we can experience through the body and the mind, using it, using the word mind as the thinking mind. <clears throat> so these, these characteristics are, um, I'm going to use some Pali words and translate them. Uh, anicca, which means impermanence. So I've talked about that some, to a certain extent this weekend, 
that everything is in flux. Everything is changing, everything is becoming something else. So in some ways we can see this. You know, some of these, these changes are happening in a very, in a way at a, sort of vibrating at a wavelength that we can pick up on. You know, that we can see, you know, the, the day turns into night and the seasons change and our bodies change. And, um, you know, uh, our, and, and then on a more subtle level, our moods change. And then, um, and then as we become more uh, attuned and, and uh, able to see the mind, to be mindful of the mind, we, uh, we see that our thoughts change very quickly. Um, there are changes happening in a much larger way that then we can pick up on our senses. For example, we, we're in this building. So we have a sense of um, that this building is here and, and we implicitly have a sense it's just here, you know, it's, it was always here, it's, it's always going to be here. We may not think those thoughts, but that's how we relate to it, you know. But of course we've We've all had the experience um, of going back to a neighborhood and, you know, and the buildings we knew were gone and, and uh, new buildings have come up and where there were once fields, there are now, you know, these uh, condos and, you know, row upon row. And um, so, uh, so things do change. Rocks change, you know, the lichen is gradually eating away at the rocks and uh, and even um, you know the orbits of planets are gradually changing the tectonic plates of the earth are moving you know we can't see it but you know um, mountains are being formed and uh, you know when when you go on the highway <coughs> and you see these great big slabs of rock that are you know, turn sideways and you see all the stripes along the rocks and th those were once at the bottom of the ocean, you know, and sediments built up, you know, millennia upon millennia and now somehow they've been cast out, the oceans are gone, uh, glaciers have come through. So all of these changes happen, but they're not, they're not changes that are in our common sense. You know, but we we understand something about them from uh, science. Um, and um, and on a on a very very minute level, you know, all of the molecules in our body are vibrating. All the cells in our body um, are being renewed uh, every six or seven years. Every single cell in your body has been exchanged. So, you know, although the DNA, DNA keeps a pattern, every single cell in our bodies has, has been exchanged. So, so you know, in, in many, many ways, things are just always in flux. And, um, and so, 
so that's that's a characteristic of uh, change, continuous change, and and um, and when we see our bodies changing, you know, especially those of us who are over forty, uh, you know, and we see um, the body breaking down, and um, and so uh, changes, you know, happening. Oh, we're you know we're on a downhill slide, and um, yeah, uh, <coughs> and so uh, change is inevitable. And the second characteristic is um, a Pali word, dukkha. Dukkha. So, dukkha is a really big word, um, and it's been translated in numerous ways. Uh, sometimes the word suffering is used, and sometimes the word unsatisfactoriness is used. So it's, it's a big stretch there. You know, suffering, you think suffering is, you know, kind of intense. Unsatisfactoriness, you know, you kind of think, oh, my soup is too cold, you know. Uh, uh, so it's, it's a wide range of um, experience. So uh, another word that sometimes uses stress. So dukkha, dukkha comes, um, it, these three characteristics are very interconnected, very interconnected. Um, and, um, and dukkha comes because we're trying to hold on to things as they are. You know, we're trying to hold on to, um, you know, we're trying to, you know, put our hands in that river of change and and grab it, <laughs> and somehow grasp it. <clears throat> so it doesn't mean, when we talk about that every experience has, uh, is, is characterized by dukkha, it doesn't mean that, that everything that we can experience is only dukkha. It doesn't mean that there's no love, that there's no joy, that there's no beauty. It, it doesn't mean that at all. But it means that, that um, when we try to hold on to things in a certain way, um, that we're going to experience dukkha. Uh, so, you know, we might have a very uh, loving relationship with a friend, with a partner, with a sibling, uh, and, um, and, and, and so you might be thinking, you know, that's a beautiful relationship, is that dukkha, you know, and, and uh, there, I'm sure that there is, you know, a lot of love and acceptance and generosity and many beautiful things. However, the relation, relationships are of the nature to change. And so that person is not always going to be the person you want them to be. Or you won't always be the person they want you to be. Uh, or they're going to be insufficient in some way. Or somehow the relationship won't be there when you need it. 
So all of these things are dukkha. And so anything that we can experience, even if it may have other very many beautiful qualities, is characterized, has the characteristic of dukkha. It's not free from dukkha. And so if we can accept that the relationship is changing, that things just are as they are, then we don't have to suffer. But if we're, you know, if we say, hey, you know, you're failing me, I need you to be this, or I need you to be that, and, uh, you know, and this relationship isn't working anymore for me, um, well, that's dukkha, because we're, tra- we're clinging. We're, we're trying to hold on to something being a certain way. And um, and the third uh, characteristic is um, anatta. Anatta is um, uh, is is often translated as no self or not self or non self. So. Um, So this, this is a really important uh, expression of the Buddha. Um, and it's really at the heart of the Buddha's teaching. Because when the Buddha uh, began teaching, when he realized his awakening and, and he began teaching, there were other people who were talking about you know, impermanence and, and suffering. But, but he, he expressed something new um, with the expression of anatta. And um, so, uh, so he was saying that anatta um, means that nothing has a permanent existence. Nothing exists uh, in a separate, independent, and permanent way. Um, he didn't say nothing exists at all. So, you know, it's, it's not that you and I have no existence, but he said nothing has a permanent, independent, and separate existence. So I'm going to talk a little bit more about all three of those things. Um, uh, so, um, well, let me, uh, let me go into anatta a little bit more. Um, so anatta, uh, the Buddha was coming at a time when, um, when there was a belief in uh, the transmigration of what was called an, an atman, an atman, or, you know, the... Uh, we, we usually translate that word as soul, and it was believed that this Atman would transmigrate through different realms of existence and be reborn again and again and again. And so the Buddha was, when he says um, anatta, it has the same root as Atman, uh, he, was, he was saying, no, that, that's not what I have realized. But there were other people saying, you know, that um, 
that nothing, uh, that, that it's only matter, it's only matter that has any existence, that, that, uh, that, that there's, you know, if you take away, you know, our thoughts and our senses, there's nothing else, you know, so there's, there's no, um, nothing underneath that, you know, if you say, no, I'm not my thoughts, I'm not my body, I'm not my, you know, experiences, there's nothing else. And the Buddha said, no, you know, that's not true either. So those people are nihilists, you know, you know, and he, and he says, no, the Buddha said, no, no, we're not annihilated, you know, nor do, nor does the soul, nor is there a soul that lives, you know, forever. He said, there's, there's, there's a middle way, there's something that's, you know, neither this nor that, but something else. And, uh, and this, this is not a thing, you know, this, uh, um, you know, different words are used to, to talk, to point to this um, uh, nibbana or nirvana or um, uh, beingness or isness. So uh, there is, um, so it's not a thing, and yet it's, um, uh, it is, it is. So words begin to fall down. Um, so, so, uh, so the Buddha said, um, you know, there is nothing that we can experience through our senses that is an independent self but it doesn't mean that there's nothing at all beyond what we experience through our senses. Or there is no thing, but anyway, <laughs> words fall down, right? So, um, and, and Rumi uses the word God to point to that. And God is such a, uh, you know, we have so much baggage around the word God. But when Rumi is, is, is using the word God, he's pointing to that, that unitive, knowing being. So, um, so to talk about anatta, I, like, I, I, I have this prop that I like to use. It's a stick uh, that's used for striking the bell sounding the bell. And, um, and so, you know, when we look at it with our common sense, we, we think it has, you know, you would say, well, it has a, a self-existence. You know, it's, uh, it seems to be a thing, you know, and, um, uh, but actually, uh, this has, um, this has, this is not a self, this has an interdependent existence. So first of all, um, it's changing. It's, it's in a process of change. So anything that is continually changing, you can't say it has a permanent self-existence. Um, so, so I've just shortened the life of this uh, stick by, I don't know, a few seconds maybe. Uh, but it's shedding molecules all the time. And, um, and 
we know intellectually that if I were to put this somewhere in the woods, you know, uh, with the elements working on it, um, you know, in a few years it would have rotted away. And if I were to put it even, you know, someplace where it was not getting, um, you know, eaten by worms and, and rained on, it would eventually turn to dust. It might take a long time, but it would eventually disintegrate. Um, so it's not permanent. But also, um, if you look at this with the eyes of wisdom, as, as Thich Nhat Hanh says, uh, you'll see in this stick, you'll see a cloud. You'll see the sun. You'll see rain. You'll see um, the, uh, the intelligence, the evolved brain of human beings who have created tools to, um, to turn this, uh, this stick and make these, these um, grooves on it. What is that called again? Uh, a lathe. Yeah. A lathe. And, um, and it's also, you'll see that um, human communication has, uh, has kind of shaped this, um, this, this stick so that it fits very nicely in the hand. So there's been some, you know, just tradition of how is it shaped and how long is it and how is it, how, you know, where are the curves so it, it really fits nicely in the hand. So, uh, so human intelligence and communication are present in the stick. Um, you can see um, social justice issues in this stick because you know <clears throat> we wonder where, well, where was it made? You know, um, was it made in you know uh, a country where the wage is very low? Was the person who made this paid a, a just wage for making it? You can see um, environmental issues, you know. How much greenhouse gas, what's the footprint <laughs> of this stick? What's the, what's the carbon footprint of this stick? You know, how much greenhouse gas did it take to bring it from wherever it was made to the little shop I bought it in on Notre Dame St Street in Montreal. Um, so uh, you can see in this stick the, the very beginnings of the universe. Because the minerals, the, 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 the heavy metals that are required for a tree to grow, for human life, are forged in the, in the birth of stars. So there's everything in this stick. The whole universe is in this stick. It has no independent existence. It only exists interdependently. <clears throat> and so then, you know, we can look at ourselves, you know, and we think of ourselves. You know, uh, I I'm me, right? I'm me. And, and then we can look at a picture of ourselves when we were a little baby. 
And we say, that's me. But how is that me? Yeah. It, what is there about the mind and the body of that being that no longer exists that is me? <clears throat> so these common sense notions of uh, of separate existence of of objects of beings, you know, every time we take a breath, you know, every time we take a sip of water, um, we are expressing our interdependent existence. <clears throat> Words, uh, words and concepts are um, one of the uh, wonderful developments of the human intelligence. Um, and they enable us to, to think about things and to, uh, to see things in ways that are, uh, can be very useful. But they also limit our understanding. You know, when uh, when a, a baby is, is just born, you know, they don't see things in, um, in separate objects. It takes some time for a baby to be able to begin to recognize the mother you know, uh, as the one who you know, feeds the baby, nurses the baby. Uh, and and uh, and, and to differentiate, you know, among different objects, and, and language develops. And, but, and that, of course, is a real development, and it's an important development, and, you know, um, and yet uh, there is a loss of a tr the truth of the connectedness of everything in the world when we begin to perceive things as separate and distinct and we give everything a name and you know and and everything becomes an object so um So somebody asked uh, a really interesting question in uh, the group this afternoon, um, and uh, I'm going to I'm going to um, just uh, uh, paraphrase the question. You know, and the question was, you know, how does this practice? So I'm 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 sitting here uh, in meditation, and I'm I'm. I'm learning to, you know, be with the breath, and the mind is becoming more calm. But how does this transform me? You know, why is this a good practice to do to uh, to become more happy? You know, more peaceful, um, uh, kinder. 
<clears throat> so as we so what what's happening in the mind is that there are many many habits conditioning of the mind and a lot of them you know probably most of them are focused on a sense of I am this self I want to feel good I want pleasant experiences I want I don't want unpleasant experiences um, I want to be liked I um, you know I need this I want that I don't want this so so all of these around a self and you know and then they become they can become you know it can be I want this it be, can become give me this it can become you know uh, I'm I'm really angry because I didn't get this so you know so there's I levels of intensity in our thinking and um, and uh, and so we begin to see the mind as we we follow the breath we're we're with the body the mind instead of being always pulled into all our thought patterns we have an anchor we have a kind of a base a home base and some space within which you know we can be mindful of our thoughts, mindful of our emotional states, which are also mostly self-focused on trying to grasp things that are changing, things that are impermanent, experiences. Grasping is all about dukkha. You know, dukkha is all about grasping, I should say. So we're creating suffering for ourselves, creating suffering in the world by all of this um, driven behavior. So, and I'm not saying that that's all we are. I'm not saying all we are are, you know, compulsive, uh, selfish people. Um, we wouldn't be sitting in this room, you know, if we didn't have uh, a real interest in um, being positive presence, a, a blessing in the world, of being kind, of, of if we didn't have you know, generosity and you know, many, many beautiful values, which you know, I know that uh, we all have. So, um, so that's, but, but those are not the problem. Those are not the problem. Those don't, those don't keep us in suffering. So, so the Buddha really focused on suffering um, in his teaching. He, when he taught, he, he said, you know, if, if in, his, in his seeking to become awakened, it was suffering, it was seeing suffering, connecting with his own suffering and also seeing suffering in the world that sent him on his journey as a bodhisattva. A bodhisattva means a seeker of awakening. And, um, and so he, um, and, and when he taught, when he first expressed his teaching, the very 
fundamental teaching he gave was in terms of suffering. Suffering, the causes of suffering, and the way to become free of suffering. So, um, so dukkha, seeing dukkha, you know, in our meditation, seeing this drivenness is, is very, very important. Uh, it's, 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 it's very much a part of the path. Uh, it's an essential part of the path. When I first began practice, meditation practice, you know, if you had asked me, Daryl, are you suffering? I would have said, suffering? What are you talking about? I'm not suffering, you know. Uh, and yet, I was totally paralyzed by fear. I was just in so much fear. Um, I was I was afraid of, you know, many many things. I, you know, and and so, and so when somebody told me about meditation, you know, without even really knowing it. That's why I, I began to meditate, and um, and I gradually began to see the mind. I began to see the fear, um, and um, and become free of it. So um, so when we when we see these. Um, these patterns in the mind, whether it's fear or anger or sensual desire. Now, sensual desire, a lot of people don't think sensual desire is, is suffering, you know, because, um, you know, you daydream about, you know, whatever it is, food or sex or, be, you know, going somewhere. And um, and then maybe you you know you go and you open the fridge and you take something and people don't really see that as suffering but but there was one little uh, experience I had when I uh, early on in my meditation when I really understood that sensual desire is suffering. Um, I was uh, I was sitting in, in the meditation hall, and um, and my mind began, you know, and I was thinking about you know when the sitting ends, I'm going to go and I'm going to make a cup of tea, and I was thinking just how much honey I would put in the tea, and how much milk I would put in the tea, and I was imagining myself, you know, sitting and drinking that cup of tea. And then the sitting kept going on. And I couldn't get that cup of tea. It's very, a very simple thing. But I saw, you know, when we are in our fantasies, our desire fantasies, it may feel pleasant, but then we don't get what we want a lot of the time. And, um, and even when we do get what we want, it is a kind of happiness, but it's impermanent. So if we're relying on that kind of um, experience to keep us happy, well, we need another fix of some sensory experience or another fix. And, and so that's, 
a kind of addiction. So, um, so we experience these, uh, this drivenness of the mind, you know, so sensory desire, jealousy, anger, um, uh, judgment, self-judgment, um, a kind of a dullness of the mind, you know, all of these things are, um, are unpleasant experiences of the mind or, or, or are uh, expressions of suffering, of dukkha. And, and so instead of being driven by it, you know, we sit. Instead of getting up and making the cup of tea, we, we sit. And we investigate. So there are a number of different enlightenment factors and the mindfulness is the first of the enlightenment factors. And the second one is investigation. It doesn't mean, investigation doesn't mean that we sit and we think about, you know, what our experience, but we investigate in a very direct way. We think, we recognize, okay, this is jealousy, or this is sensual desire. What's the nature of this? You know, what is the experience of this in the body and the mind? And we, you know, as, I've, as we've been talking about in this retreat, we move into knowing, you know, the nature of it. And we discover that it is impermanent. We discover that, you know, the, the craving, you know, for the cup of tea or the craving uh, for, uh, to get up, uh, you know, and uh, go somewhere else you know, will pass away. Now even sometimes when, we're, when we were with um, painful experience in the body, you know, and we move into it, we discover, maybe it doesn't go away, but it, it shifts, it moves, it changes, there's space in it. Sometimes it, you know, it opens up and it's kind of neutral and then maybe it comes back in a different place. So, so even physical pain, when we investigate it in this way, we discover that it's impermanent. And we discover that it's dukkha. We discover that in, in our investigation, we discover, you know, some things you don't need to discover, you know. You know that physical pain is dukkha. But you might not know that sensual desire is dukkha. You know, you might not know that judging others is dukkha. You might not know that being angry, being angry can feel, you know, really energizing as long as you're being driven by it, you know, oh, you know, that's so-and-so, I'm going to tell them this, and they should have done that, and, and then, you know, when you turn your attention inward and you feel it in the body, it can feel like you're on fire, it can feel, you know, it's very painful, it's, uh, it's intense sense of it's separation and self and other and uh, this, uh, there's a kind of vulnerability in there as well. You feel hurt. You know, often anger is covering up hurt. <clears throat> so our investigation also 
shows us that our experience is anatta, is non-self. So that's investigation reveals that whatever it is is arising from conditions. It's ar arising interdependently. It has an interdependent existence. So, um, so, for example, you know, I may feel very, very hungry, you know, and that's unpleasant. And um, it might be creating a strong desire and a lot of restlessness and maybe impatience and all kinds of things. And then, um, you know, if I can be with that sensation of hunger, you know, I realize, well, it's, yeah, it's impermanent, it's dukkha, and it's anatta, it's arising from conditions. It's, uh, so, um, so, Um, so this is, this is how uh, we become free. We become free of the uh, mental habits that bind us to this deluded idea that we are a separate self and that, and that we are, um, uh, that somehow we're limited to being this body and mind. Um, there are a number of uh, poems. This seems to be a real roomy retreat for me. Um, I, I actually, there's so many wonderful um, uh, compassion poems so I, uh, by Rumi and I. Uh, but there, this is a beautiful um, interconnectedness poem by Rumi. It's called, Say I Am You, and he's talking to God. I am dust particles in sunlight. I am the round sun. To the bits of dust, I say, stay. To the sun, keep moving. I am morning mist and the breathing of evening. I am wind in the top of a grove and surf on the cliff. Mast, rudder, helmsman, and keel. I am also the coral reef they founder on. I am a tree with a trained parrot in its branches. Silence, thought, and voice. The musical air coming through a flute, a spark of a stone, a flickering in metal, both candle and the moth and the moth crazy around it. Rose and the nightingale lost in the fragrance. I am all orders of being, the circling galaxy, the evolutionary intelligence the lift and the falling away, what is and what isn't. 
You who know Jalaluddin, you, the one in all, say who I am. Say, I am you. Jalaluddin is another name for Rumi. He's called Jalaluddin Rumi. So we, we begin when we stop identifying with this self and you know just it's all about me and and we you know as I've talked about you know the heart begins to open in compassion to to see that you know we are we are one we are we are uh, we're not separate we're we touch each other each each one of us has has touched each other, each other over the course of this, of this retreat, and we'll all go away, you know, different than how we came. And um, and all life, you know, interpenetrates us, and we, and we are part of it all. So our ideas about who we are are so small, you know, and 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 the reality of who we are is unbounded. There's one more poem I'll read you to end uh, my talk. Another Rumi poem. Out beyond ideas of wrongdoing and rightdoing, there is a field. I'll meet you there. When the soul lies down in that grass, the world is too full to talk about. Ideas, language, even the phrase each other doesn't make any sense. So let's sit for a few minutes. As we meditate, we realize the truth of the simple saying 
the Sanskrit words neti, neti, not this, not that. I am not this, I am not that. And in the emptiness of not knowing, we discover who we truly are. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.